Psalm 72, it's a, it says here a Psalm of Solomon, and we'll get into that and exactly what that means. But it says, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people and he will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Now, in order to understand this psalm, we need to know the author and his heart at the time. And it can be a little confusing because if you look at the title, and if you remember, the title is part of the inspired word of God. I say that pretty much every time, but it's important to know. And in most of our Bibles, it's going to say a psalm of Solomon. But then it can be confusing because you go all the way down to the last verse, verse 20. It says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that's how this psalm is presented, is presented as a prayer. And it's presented as a prayer, as we see again in verse 20, of King David. And then you have to ask, well, why would it be called a, a psalm of Solomon if that's the case? How could Solomon write this and also be the last prayers of his father? Um, we look at the, the, the verbiage here and how it's related to the son of promise. Well, Solomon was David's son of, of promise. Well, the Hebrew preposition of, O-F, you know, when it says of Solomon, can also be translated to. The preparations, both in Greek and Hebrew, are dependent upon history and context. Well, history, it doesn't really seem to bear it out. The Psalm of Solomon and the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, has, has ended. Well, keep in mind, last week, last two weeks, really what we have seen We've seen this progression of psalms, Psalm 70 and 71. Psalm 70 was a psalm of a mature man who had walked with the Lord and he has learned from his past experiences. Psalm 71 was a simple personal psalm of an old man. Now in Psalm 72, it continues the progression as this old man's thoughts are of a future kingdom, of his son as a ruler, and God's will in his kingdom. And so that preposition, it could be a psalm of Solomon, but I think King James Version got it right when it said a psalm to Solomon. And so again, following the progression, this older man, King David, he's the author of the Psalms, as he's writing these things, his last thoughts, well, I know as a father and as somebody who has these responsibilities that he has, what is going to be my last thoughts? Well, the preservation in this particular context of the kingdom, but also the knowledge that his son Solomon, this immature man, is going to be the ruler of this kingdom. And so as we're looking at these things and based upon the promises that God has given Solomon concerning not just Solomon, uh, promises God has given David concerning his son Solomon, but also the future of the kingdom, looking at it as a psalm to Solomon in my estimation makes perfect sense. And so the writer of the psalm sees a potentially great future for the ruler of Israel. Why? Because he understands that Israel, Israel, at least up to this point, not in perfection because David's been anything but perfected, but Israel were those, they would say, who are governed by God. And he understands what we know to be true in the New Testament, that if God is for us, then nobody can be against us. And as God has established this nation, this nation will persevere. And we've seen history bears that out. And you can say, well, 
Pastor Mike, Babylon came in and they, they didn't exist. And then Rome came in and they didn't exist for 2,000 years. And yeah, they exist now, but how can you say all of that? Well, there's been no other country that has been conquered and then ceased to exist that was restored. Israel, Israel has done it multiple times. And we just see the hand of God upon Israel as God brought them back from Babylonian captivity and reestablished them. They rejected God. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome came in and conquered them, and for 2,000 years, they ceased to exist. But then, in 1946, they came back. They came back, and they've been in existence ever since. And as we pointed out in past studies, how in the world, and, and, and this is important, and it's something you need to really think through and consider yourself, how in the world does Israel exist today? Take God out of the equation. Everybody around them hates them. The surrounding countries, they've even said they want to wipe Israel off of the map. But still, there is Israel. Right after they were reestablished in 1946, the Arab countries attacked them, but they withstood. 1967, 1972, not only did they protect themselves, they conquered those countries. And God, God has been with them every step of the way. Well, why would God cause them to not exist anymore and then after almost 2,000 years bring them back? Because it's imperative that Israel exists for the purpose of the fulfillment of end-time theology. As we look at the book of Revelation, it's necessary that Israel exists. Now, Part of the problems that the theologian has had in the past is trying to make sense of end-time theology without the existence of Israel. And so what they have done is something called replacement theology. They have said that the church is now Israel, but the church is not Israel. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. Israel has been reestablished. And we can look back now and we can see that the promises of God are continually working out in and through Israel. Now, in most biblical prophecy, there is a short and a long, and this is prophetic, Psalm 72, and there is going to be a short to it, and there is going to be a long to it. The short is Solomon, and again, that title, a psalm to Solomon. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, it says, then David, and the name David, the name David, that word David means beloved, then David confronted I'm sorry, comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and laid with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. Jedidiah means loved by the Lord because of the Lord. And so what David recognized is God's heart towards Solomon. It was obvious to King David that Solomon was to be his heir apparent. Now, as we go through this psalm and we see the verbiage here, we also see the long, and the long is going to be Jesus Christ. It's going to be Messiah, because there are certain things here that Solomon did not fulfill. And so really what David was doing as he was praying, as he wrote this psalm to Solomon, in actuality, he was writing it to succession of kings all the way through to Jesus Christ, all the way through to the Messiah. And so we have the excitement of a father for his son, understanding that just as God has done great things in David's life, he's going to do great things in Solomon's life. And the excitement of one who walks by faith in God's words, that this kingdom, this kingdom, David has got to be thinking, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than Solomon. 
This is God, and these are God's reasons, and these are God's purposes. This church here, this church is bigger than any one person. The church is bigger than any one person. It's never founded upon anybody. It's founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as the Lord Jesus Christ is in control, the church is going to continue. There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of questions about laws that are being passed and are we going to be able to preach the word and so on and so forth. God is able to preserve his church. The gates of hell will never prevail. And that being the case, church dynamic may change. We may have to go back to the basement. We may have to go back underground. But nonetheless, the word of God is still going to go out. Matter of fact, that difficulty, that hardship, it may just be a really good thing. Because when hardship has entered into the church, the church flourished. We can get so kicked back. We can get so comfortable when things are going well. Sometimes we need that little bit of turbulence in order to stir things up. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see the church was doing well. They were gathering together and they were pulling together and they were taking care of the needs with one an- of one another. And then all of a sudden, what did God do? Because he had told them to go throughout all of the world to make disciples. And what were they doing? They were kind of pulling within themselves. And God threw that big rock in the middle of that calm pond, that rock of persecution. What did it do? It dispersed them throughout, not just throughout the world, but it also dispersed Christianity throughout the ages. Tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 72 in six parts, each reach to Solomon's kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. So what we're going to see is we're going to see the character of the kingdom, we're going to see the duration of the kingdom, the expanse of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, the blessing of the kingdom, and then we're going to see a closing doxology. So again, verses 1 through 4, a psalm of Solomon, and we believe it's a psalm to Solomon. Give, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. The character of the kingdom. Character, this is a combination of qualities or features that make one person or a group of people different from another. Your character is what causes you to stand out either in a good way or a bad way. We all know people of exceptionally fine character, and we hold them in high regards. We know people of poor character, and we usually don't like to be around such people, or at least are weary of them. Now, what makes a kingdom founded upon God different from any other? What makes their character stand out from anybody else? Now, when I say kingdom, we do need to look at it as a nation, and we need to visit here our nation as well but also our church and us as even individuals. Well, it's mentioned three times in this section of Scripture here, and what really makes the character of a kingdom stand out is righteousness. Righteousness is the ultimate, what is ultimately right in the sight of God. If you are a righteous person, that means you are right in the sight of God, and that is based upon biblical morals. You live a life that reflects the Bible. And if you're not a righteous person, then you are living a life that is contrary to the will and the desire of God. This word literally means straightness 
or holiness, complete separation from the world or complete separation from that which is contrary to God. So any kingdom is either going to have the righteousness that comes from God or there's going to be an attempt at rightness based upon the abilities of man. And here we have a progression of righteousness. Look how it first comes up. It's actually in the previous chapter in verse 24. My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. Second, righteousness, we see that it imputes, it's imputed to man. Verse 1, give the king your, righteous, your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. So true righteousness is that which, well, in verse 24, we see it's from God. In verse 1, we see that it is imputed to man. There's only one way that anybody is righteous, and that's because God in them. The only way I can live a moral life, the only way I can adhere to proper biblical morals is through the Spirit who dwells inside of me. It's a desire of my heart, but it has to be an act of God working in me and working through me. Thirdly, a person who receives righteousness is seen as just that, as being right. Verse 2, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And so this king who God has imputed righteousness to him, he will judge with righteousness. Righteous will be, righteousness will be the response of what he does and how he reacts to decisions and the judgments that he makes. And so if you come up to me and you say, Pastor Mike, I'm a righteous person. Well, first of all, I'd probably think you're a pretty prideful person, but I'll, I'll, I won't even, I'll just take it at face value at that point. But we'll see. We'll see how it is and how you react to situ certain situations and circumstances. Because if you're a righteous person, righteousness will be revealed through your manner of speech and through your actions. And then we also see in verses 3 and 4 that there will be fruit from righteousness. There is going to be the hand of God that works through a righteous person's life or a righteous ruler's life. It says the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people and save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. And so that country is going to be ruled in a just way so that the, the people who are looked down upon, they are treated just as fairly as the people who are looked up to. There is going to be a leveling, if you will, of the playing field when it comes to how people are treated and how judgment is rendered. And so we can look and we can see a society where because of somebody based upon who they are, the amount of money they have, the notoriety they have, that they're treated better than somebody who may be poor or outcast or whatever, that is not what is right in the sight of God. Matter of fact, God made that very clearly in the giving of the law in the book of Exodus. We see the heart of God that nobody is to take a bribe in order to influence justice, that the poor are to be taken care of. Matter of fact, the poorest of the land were considered to be the widows and the orphans. And God said, make sure you don't oppress the widow or the orphan, or I will take your life from you, and then your wife and your children will then be the widow and the orphan. And so we see the importance that God, in, uh, that God imputes upon this. And so we need to take that to heart as well. 
anybody who comes through that door, whether they're somebody we know, friend that we see all the time, whether there might be somebody who's unattractive. And when I say unattractive, maybe they're not as hygienically clean as we are. Maybe there's somebody who just kind of rubs us the wrong way. We are to have that attitude of sacrificial love because when Christ died on the cross, guess who he died for? Yet while we were still sinners, he died for the ungodly. He died for us. He died for all of humanity. And it's not up for us to make superficial judgments. As far as righteousness from man, we're told in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. Now, put the kingdom, if you will, of the United States into that verse, taking God out, trying to build up a solid nation built upon the thoughts, the deeds, the righteousness of man. Well, all of our righteousness is as like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. That's the destination of this nation. But as far from God, Revelation 19.8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed, this is the church, to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, and our iniquities like the wind he has taken away. That fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints, those things that were done in Jesus Christ. Again, through the power, Christ imputes his righteousness upon us so that we are seen as righteous. We are seen just as if we have never sinned. And as I've said before, the Father sees us, his adopted children, just as he sees his natural children. This was fulfilled in Solomon as God's righteousness was revealed through the wisdom and riches which God gave him. In 1 Kings chapter 3, remember what he asked for when God says, I'll give you anything. What do you desire? He asked for wisdom. He, he realized that this job of, of ruling this kingdom, and at the time it was the most powerful kingdom in the world, was too big for him. This is beyond me. God, give me wisdom in order to, to rule your people, in order to care for them. And then we see in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 10 of 1 Kings that God also gave him many riches, many blessings as well. But in the midst of all of that, because the only one who was ever going to be perfect was Jesus Christ, we're also very familiar with Solomon's failures. The king was commanded to never multiply riches, never multiply wives, and never multiply horses or, or personal power. And Solomon kind of went overboard on all of these things. He wasn't content with just that which God had given him. He went for more and more and more. He had over a thousand wives. We see in chapter 11 of 1 Kings that he worshiped false gods. He taxed the people. And really what it was was man soiling the righteousness of God. Then there is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So God looks down upon you and he sees somebody who is righteous. He sees somebody who is straight. Remember, he has chosen not to remember your sins or your lawless deeds anymore. On the day that you were saved, you were made right in the sight of God. And on that day, you'll never become righter in the sight of God than you were on the day of your salvation. Never will God love you any more than the love he has displayed upon you on the day of your salvation. 
And we need to see that these things are immobile and unchangeable. And these are things that we're able to cling to, again, as an anchor to our soul, especially as we go through tribulations, as we go through health issues, as we go through the spiritual attacks that are sure to come, as we go through the difficulties of life. All of those things are realities, but the greatest reality is Jesus Christ and the great work that he has done and the great work that he continues to do. Secondly, we see the duration of the kingdom, verses 5 through 7. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Now, he uses this term, he uses it a couple times, until the moon is no more. Because if you look in the book of Revelation, you see there's going to come a time when the moon no longer gives us light. And I really believe that this is encompassing the age, the church age, is the age before the church age, the church age, and then the age of the time of tribulation. And so this is the age of man that he is talking about. So obviously he can't just be talking about Solomon. It just shows us that the long of this prophecy is truly the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the one common dynamic of every human ruler? Every human ruler has an inherent issue, an inherent problem, the good ones and the bad ones. Sooner or later, every ruler is going to die. They're going to go away. And we can even look at every rule, every kingdom that has ever flourished on this planet. Sooner or later, it died. It went away. And there's certain earmarks of that. Homosexuality and sexual perversion came to the forefront. <clears throat> Injustice became part of the dynamic of those kingdoms. All of these things, as man's righteousness was added, it diluted any semblance of God's and it, it, it killed off the kingdom. Now, not all of them even started with anything from God, but they just took their, their immoral lives and they even made it worse. Greek, Greece, at one time, they ruled the world. Alexander the Great was drunk one night, and he was crying because there was nothing else to conquer. He, he died that night of pneumonia, fell asleep out in the rain, and then his country or his kingdom was divided, and, and that kind of fell apart. And then there was the rise of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire that, that ruled for hundreds of years, but look at Rome today. Is anybody really afraid of Rome today? Um, Rome is, is almost a third world nation today. There was the Mongolian Empire. Does anybody know any Mongolians today? I, I don't. I mean, they still exist, but still. The Spanish Empire, the English Empire. They said the sun never set on the English Empire, but it's just a shadow of what it was. Napoleon was a man who was banished even during his lifetime. And so then you have to ask, what about the United States? And I was thinking, well, we're probably at the apex right now, and I don't think we are. I think we're on the other side now. I, I think we've reached our apex, and I, I really think we see the things that are unrighteous that are, are going on, unrighteous that are presented from this nation, and you have to believe that, wow, we've passed that time. I mean, there could be a great revival that comes, and God could once again exalt us, but as far as where we are at as a nation... If you look at your Bible, you read through your Bible, and you look at the things that are going on in this nation, you look at the laws that are being passed, you just look at the dynamic of the people of this nation and the things that are now acceptable, that at one time were unacceptable, and you see that these things are contrary to Scripture, there is no way that we are at the apex. And if you're not at the apex, 
If you're not going up or if you're not at the crest, then it means you're going down. It means you're headed down. Am I predicting the downfall of our nation? Well, yeah, because all the nations are going to fall. All nations will fall. I've read to the end of the book. And you know what? In that last book of the Bible, I don't see the United States of America. I don't even see the focal point of what's going on in this area. We know it's in the Middle East. It's everything is always centered around Israel. We just think everything is centered around the United States of America. It's a great country. I love my country. I pray for my country. Continue to do so. I would fight for my country. But I have a greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a greater love for God. And that's where my ultimate loyalties lie. God's intent was not that Solomon should sit and rule forever, but that there would be a succession of rulers from his line forever. But unfortunately, Solomon, because he sought after the false gods, he married women from other nations and more than likely to seal peace treaties and whatnot. And then he built shrines for their false gods and all of that. And God visited him one day and said, I'm going to take the the kingdom from you. I'm not going to take it from you, but I'm going to take it from your descendants. I'm going to split it. Now, the reason he wasn't going to take it from Solomon is because God is faithful. Now, if God is faithful... What is God faithful to? He's faithful to his word. That's the standard. And he told him that Solomon was going to sit on the throne. So he didn't take it from Solomon. But Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it was during his reign that the kingdom was split. It was split into the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and the northern kingdom of the other ten tribes, which is called Israel. So there's no doubt that the kingdom described here is forever obviously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Again, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish in the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And so he's talking about this rain and these showers that water the earth. And the idea is, is that the word has come to man. And this is how God has revealed himself to us. Now we're told in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Again, look at the United States. Righteousness exalts a nation. Now, all of our founding fathers were not Christians. A lot of them were deists and so on and so forth, but they weren't necessarily Christians. But it's undeniable this nation was founded upon biblical concepts, and that's truth. And so righteousness exalts a nation. What nation has been exalted, at least in the last few hundred years, greater than the United States? But there's a warning there. It says, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we see what direction are we going here. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, it says, He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and on his kingdom there will be no end. Speaking again of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see the expanse of the kingdom, verses 8 through 11. He shall have dominion 
also from sea to sea. Now, when it says sea to sea, it's probably speaking of the Mediterranean, you know, in the short, as far as Solomon, Mediterranean, either to the Sea of Galilee or the, the, the Dead Sea. I, I don't really know, but nonetheless, the idea is, is to encompass the land that God has given him. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall, shall serve him. What this is speaking of, all of these expanses, is the known territories of the days. In Solomon's life, if he didn't own a nation, then that nation paid tribute to him. He was, in essence, ruler of all the nations that were known in the areas that God had given him. Again, man is given so much, but a lot of times to his ruin. And we've seen this in various kingdoms that they overexpand themselves and they're unable to deal with everything. When Solomon left, his son was not such a great ruler, and that's where the riff happened. And, but again, we see this fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Looking at Revelation chapter 5, again, that great chapter at, right after the rapture of the church, it's this great heavenly choir that is there. And who, who composes that choir? All nations, all tongues, and all tribes. All of humanity. All humanity who call upon the name of the Lord. And so God's kingdom, God's expanse, God's expanse goes a lot further than we can even ever imagine. Why? Because it's based upon the supernatural ability and desires of God. Now, remember that native that everybody's concerned about? You know, what about the native on a desert island somewhere? God is able to reach anybody and everybody. Who are we to limit God based upon what we can do and what we can't do? God is divine and God is all-powerful and he is going to reach all those whom he desires. That being the case, if I want to be used by God, I have to have that mindset, kind of what I referred to just a little bit before. I can't have prejudices based upon outward appearances. I, I have to look through to the best of my ability as God does and see the heart and the soul of a person. Now, it's going to be severely limited. I understand that. But what I need to see that this is somebody that God loves and God wants to see in his family. And as much as depends upon me, I want to fulfill God's purpose in that person's life because God uses us as, as his representatives. And so that being desire... We have to have a heart for all people. We have to have a heart for all of mankind. There's going to be people that are currently of Islam that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to get saved, and they're going to get right with God, and, and we can't deny that. There's going to be that guy out there on that desert island who nobody... But God's going to reach him somehow, some way. But there's also our neighbor. There's also maybe even people of our own household that God desires to reach as well. And even as Isaiah said, we should have the very same attitude. Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me for your reasons and your purposes. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, 
And then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's why we're told in Philippians chapter 10 and verse 11, Every mouth will confess, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do it now and be one of his subjects, or you can do it later and be condemned for eternity, but either way, it's going to happen. Then, fourthly, verses 12 through 14, the nature of the kingdom. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and, the, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. The nature of this kingdom is going to be compassion. Compassion is going to reign in the Lord's kingdom. Now, when you see poor here and all, don't look at a bank account or whatever. Poor poor is those who are under the bondage of sin, those who are in the oppression of the flesh and those who are under the direction of the world. And, and it's killing them, and they need what God has to offer, and God is very compassionate towards them. God was compassionate towards all of humanity, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see the compassion of the Lord, and how the compassion of the Lord is going to continue to drive his kingdom. That's a compound word, co-passion. That's to be passionate with somebody together is to see somebody who's hurting and go to be with them and to see them filled and prepared to go and to minister to others. Solomon, during his time, he fought no wars, but man's compassion will only go as far as it doesn't cost him directly. And so we have to be a people who are willing to give of ourselves. And a little bit more than that, give of ourselves for the benefit of others as well. And so human compassion... Human compassion can only go so far. Remember George Bush Sr., one of his sayings, I don't remember if it was during campaign or whatever, but he called for a kinder, gentler America. The next president was Bill Clinton. After that was his son, and what did America do? America went to war. Man is only able to deliver so much. Whether the war is just or not, I'm not going there, but I'm just saying we desire to have peace, and we'll fight other countries in order to get it. There's something, something not right there. But what Jesus says is, die to yourself. Die to yourself, and it's through that that I will bring peace into your life, and I will work my peace through your life into the lives of others. In Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and in truth. The one thing that is unique to God's kingdom above all others is God's grace that is motivated by his compassion. Fifthly, verses 15 through 17, is the blessings of the kingdom. And he shall give life, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth and on top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. As the Lord blesses the king, the members of the kingdom are rightly blessed as well. During Solomon's day, again, there was no war. 
Israel was the richest nation on the planet, and they say that it was very possibly it was the richest nation ever, and the needs of the people were taken care of. I'm just going to go through this list quickly, but in, in, in verse 15, the first part, we see financial blessings. In verse 15, the last part, spiritual blessings. Verse 16, the first part, physical blessings. Verse 16, the last part, ministry blessings. And then verse 17, blessings to other. And again, we know that our blessings come through one simple source, the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 12:3. I understand that this is delivered to Israel through Abraham, but nonetheless, the Lord said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But we have great promises of blessings in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. If you recall when we studied that, you can look for them, verses 1 through 14. There are seven spiritual blessings that are listed there that we have available to us even today. I'll, I'll let you dig them out. But again, we're told in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Have you taken time, and this is kind of, Christian jargon, but take it seriously, to count your blessings, to really identify the ways that God has moved in your life, the way that God has blessed you. And again, everybody here, as far as I know, you've eaten a meal or afterwards you're going to eat a meal. Everybody here is is dressed well. Everybody here, I I think, drove in a a car. And, And God has blessed us. And we can so easily take these things for granted. It's been said that the poorest person in this nation is the richest person in another nation, financially speaking. And we see, and we have to understand how God has provided for every step of the way. And then take that even further and extrapolate it further. The God who has provided for me in the past, the God who has provided for me now, is going to be the God that provides for me in the future as well. And then lastly, verses 18 through 20. This is a doxology. Doxology is just a sudden outburst of praise. And it's as if the psalmist, now again, this is David, and it's the end of David, the prayers, verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And this is how he wants to close with all that he's written up to this point and just praising his God. He says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, or so be it and so be it. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so his desire was just that God would reign in this world and that, Lord, your love would be lavished upon this planet. The Apostle Paul. Now, if you ask somebody, where's the richest? Now, it's kind of a silly statement to make, but the richest theology in the Bible, if you took a survey, they would probably say the book of Romans, the majority of the people. And that's what Paul was doing. He was writing some very rich theology based upon the doctrine of justification through faith. And then he gets to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And it's as if he just set his pen down. He was probably dictating it, but he was just thinking on all of the things that he had just written. Some things hard to understand. You got to get in there and you got to study and you got to pull them out and all of that. But where did that theology lead to? And that's a problem because theology can lead to arrogance. Theology can lead to indifference. Theology can lead to separation at times, even within the Christian circles. But where did it lead, Paul? Theology led to doxology. Theology, his theology, as he thought back on it, it led to his outburst of praise. In Romans eleven thirty-three through 36, 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Father, we just say amen to that. We say amen as we understand the magnitude, God, of your love and how far-reaching it is and how that one day that it reached into our lives. We thank you, Father, for how compassionate you are and that, Lord, you saw us in such a sorry state, but nonetheless, you entered into our lives and you saved us and you have lifted us up in a high place as your favorite children. And because of that, Lord, I, I just even pray for this last song. I pray that we would digest these things, these doxologies, but also the things that were spoken of in the magnitude of who our Lord is. And Father, those things as they digest in us, I pray that they would be expressed outwardly and just the spirit of praise. And so, Father, just bless us tonight for being here and studying your word. But I pray, Father, that we would take these things out of here and we would live a life accordingly as we look at who our Lord truly is and the great promises that have been given that have been fulfilled and looking forward to the ones in which you still desire to, be, uh, to, desire to fulfill. And so, Lord, we just thank you and praise you. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of you, how unsearchable are your judgments. And so, God, as you have revealed these things to us, we just rejoice in this place tonight. To your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? <laughs> 